Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by The Lion King on Broadway. From its all-star cast to cutting-edge technology and gorgeous visuals, The Lion King's release in theaters was huge. But an even better way to experience The Lion King is right on Broadway. Celebrating over 20 years on Broadway, it's still one of the most breathtaking productions ever brought to life on stage. The New York Times says there is simply nothing else like it. As listeners of The Big Picture know, we have very strong feelings about The Lion King here, but we love the Broadway version of The Lion King. So now is the perfect time to see it. It's on Broadway and across North America on tour. Get your tickets at lionking.com. Sean Fennessy, editor-in-chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about our glory days. I'm joined today by my pal, Chris Ryan. Hello, Chris. What's up, big man? (laughs) Chris, hopefully you'll be the Clarence Clemens to my (laughs) boss. We're here to talk about Bruce Springsteen, among other things. Later in the show, I will have an interview with the writer-director, Gurinder Chadha, who has made a new movie called Blinded by the Light, which is based on a memoir by the writer Safraz Manzor. And he is obsessed with Bruce Springsteen. And Gurinder is as well. And they've made this movie as a sort of ode to the coming of age that Bruce can sometimes inspire inside of a person. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves with the Bruce of it all, though. I will say I'm not a major Bruce person. I know this about you. And nevertheless, I think you and I are going to share our top five Bruce Springsteen songs. How are you feeling about that? I'm ready to blow the saxophone of takes when it comes to that. Yeah, you know, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. Before we get to Bruce, I want to talk to you a little bit about the world of movies. There's quite a a bit going on right now. Let's just, let's sift through some headlines, man. You Let's just unfold the day's papers. Stock up, stock down. <laughs> Winners and losers. I got the trades. Yeah, spread out in front of me. <laughs> um, should we do it in the in the persona of Johnny Greenbook? I've been I've been hoping you would bring Johnny Greenbook back back to the big little picture. women. Why aren't they taller? <laughs> when did Johnny Greenbook just become Pacino? And I don't he? know. I don't know. It's 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 a character that gets away from me a lot. Okay. Yeah. Where does he rank uh, in the pantheon of Bobby Sony? Bobby Sony and Johnny Greenbook. Yeah. yeah. Two of your best. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Let's talk about some trailers. Okay. A bunch of trailers came out. The trailer for Little Women, which you uh, you alluded to, mm-hmm. is the new film by Greta Gerwig. This is her second film as a writer-director. Uh, you a big Louisa May Alcott head? Gotta admit, uh, have not hit that one yet. Okay. <laughs> it's in the queue, but I haven't. I Actually, it's one of my embarrassing blind spots in uh, great American literary works is Little Women. Do you think that the listeners of this show are fired up to hear you and I break down Little Women? I'm sure Dobbins, her eye just popped out of her skull <laughs> somewhere on vacation. I'm sorry she couldn't be here for this, but I do. I'm very excited for this movie. Yeah, I think it looks great. I don't, it, this is probably not in my exact tier of film. If you listen to the episode that Amanda and I did about Sense and Sensibility and Spider-Verse, yeah. I underlined some of my, um, some of, not issues. You like the, things with Thanos in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What I need is a gauntlet. <laughs> Will there be a gauntlet in Little Women? Do we know? <laughs> no? Uh, Will man. Joe have a gauntlet in this new version? Um, I, I was, I asked uh, my wife who the fourth one is. And she just like looked at me in a way that was just like the, of all the things that I've had to endure you talking about <laughs> Drogon and Josh Brolin and Sicario <laughs> and crime novels that don't matter. And you're like, who's Joe? <laughs> who's the fourth one? It was really a bad beat for me. It's an interesting cast. Yeah. 
It's uh, a reunion for Sir Ronan and Timothy Chalamet from Lady Bird and for Greta from Lady Bird. Uh, Florence Pugh, uh, for whom I have built an imaginary shrine post-Midsommar. Emma Watson, who, you know, just going to say it, not, not really sold on Emma Watson. I don't really know what to do about that. I'm very enthusiastic for this movie. I'll tell you why. Tell me. Because nothing is... I love when filmmakers find thematic relevance in a variety of works that still draws back to the things that they're ultimately interested in. If you watch like the first shot of this trailer and you watch um, Saoirse Ronan running across the screen, it, it calls to mind like the image of Greta Gerwig running across the screen in Francis Ha in the trailer for that movie when Modern Love starts playing. Uh, and it feels like Gerwig has like a real deep connection with this work as part and parcel with the other things that she's done in her life. Like, like Lady Bird, like Frances Ha, like Miss America, Mistress America. And I, you can almost feel the crackle of longing to express oneself in all of those movies and longing to be something that you're not yet in those movies. And I, so I'm very excited to see her apply that to this. There's a couple of other people that are in this film that I think are noteworthy. Okay. One of them is James Norton. Yeah, my guy from McMafia. Yeah, which I didn't really care McMafia for. McMafia Island, yeah. Yes, exactly. That was... That was where where what was better, McMafia or Taboo? Um, McMafia was a much more pleasant place to live. I see. Uh Taboo, there's not a great uh great hygiene standards there. Yeah, how are the rations <laughs> in the treasure chest on Taboo Island at this but, point? Uh, but you know, McMafia, you've got all these empty London condo developments. Yeah. We've got a we've got a big little lies reunion happening in this movie. Meryl mm-hmm. Streep and Laura Dern are both here. Big little women. Big little women. Tracy Letts is here, mm-hmm. the famed playwright and, and back from Ladybird, esteemed evil character actor. Yeah, uh, there's another name here that I don't recall seeing in the trailer. Bob Odenkirk, is he in this? That's what it says. That's what it says on the internet. <laughs> is he selling them cell phones? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Better call Little Women. Um, Come on, you're, are you excited for this? Is this a contender? Is this like a heavyweight? What are we doing? Really, it's, Christmas. it's a really tough one, right? Because I obviously I love Greta. I love all the films that you just uh, outlined. I don't. I also have not read the source material. I don't have much of a relationship with the 1994 version. I don't have a relationship with the 40s version of this movie. You know, it's certainly not in the not for me camp. Everything is for us. Everything's for everybody. But I'm just, I don't know. So it's just not. I'm not fired up. Okay. It, it looks like Little Women. I think you're going to have to reckon with this, though. I know. It, it feels like this movie is going to be a major conversation topic in December and, and into February. I, I agree with you. I, we're leading the show with a conversation about this film because it is no doubt a key award season player. It's um, it's It'll be an interesting box office test, I think. We're going through these, you know, these fits of anxiety about what can and can't be a hit every other week. And, you know, does this have a chance to be in the spirit of something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is, you know, similarly not a comic book movie or an action film. Um, I guess we'll we'll wait and see. A couple of other trailers this week. Mm-hmm. Parasite. This looks sick. I'm seeing it tonight. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Sick uh, invite. Uh, would you like to come? <laughs> uh, I don't know. If, I, I, I hope this movie is everything that it has been promised to be. What's it been promised to be? Um, a palm door winning masterpiece from one of the greatest living filmmakers, Bong Joon-ho. Uh, since this film premiered at Cannes, uh, hashtag Bong Hive has emerged. Oh, cool. Loud and, cl- loud and clear. You, are you in the Bong Hive? I'm, I'm not. I'm not part of Bong Twitter. I mean, I, I love his films and his work, but yeah, I'm not, not in that. Yeah, Bong is an interesting figure in the world. His most recent movie is Okja, which is a movie that I thought was brave and interesting. Not my favorite movie. He has made some incredible films, though. Memories of Murder in particular, I think of, and Snowpiercer, I think of. 
Parasite it feels like one of those movies that it's going to be a little bit tough to talk about until the world is starting to see it. Yeah. And I think one of the big tests here will be, will a lot of people go see this film? Because it's getting a pretty heavy push already from Neon. It's obviously got tremendous buzz. It was, you know, celebrated coming out of Cannes. You excited? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's like, it's got real interesting... Hitchcock twisted with like Ripley kind of, you know, a thriller that also is about class and ambition. So I'm just fascinated to check it out. What do you have like the log line of what it's about? So just a brief synopsis of the film here is greed and class discrimination threaten the newly formed symbiotic relationship between the wealthy Park family and the destitute Kim clan. So perhaps we'll see some class anxiety. Perhaps we'll see some um, physical repulsion, potentially. There seems to be a little bit of um, intellectual culture clash at play in the trailer, too. So I'm very much looking forward to that movie. A couple of other trailers very quickly that have come out. Last Christmas, which Amanda and I talked about, you know, this is a romance, theoretically, written by Emma Thompson, starring Amelia Clark and Henry Golding. Seems like a tearjerker. Um, are you pro-Amelia Clark movie star? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I don't know that it's going to happen, mm-hmm. but I, I'm like, I find her very charming. Yeah. And this seems like, I just wish like, the, the only thing I want to see actually is whether or not the development and like production process for a movie like this coming out in like theaters and having a big push like this feels appreciably different from like the rom-coms you're starting to see on Netflix where you're kind of like, ah, this could have used a little bit more time in the oven or was this maybe a pilot script that got turned into a feature um, and that goes for TV shows that I've been seeing too recently. Like I was going to talk about Four Weddings and a Funeral on The Watch today. And you can feel that being like, are, are you guys sure you didn't want to just do a remake of Four Weddings and a Funeral, but then you kind of tacked on a 10-episode show about it instead? Uh, with Last Christmas, like it seems like a really kind of like sappy romance movie set during Christmas. Fro- frothy. Yeah, and yeah. I, I've been really into the... Uh, the conspiracy theories about like what happens in this movie, which is pretty dope. Um, if any of them actually do happen, I think people are going to like riot in the theaters though. So that's pretty, it's basically people taking the George Michael song and trying to break down lyrically, like what could possibly be happening in this movie. A lot of heart transplant talk. So no spoilers. Cause I don't you know. Nobody's seen it. But. Is last Christmas, the new lost. That's yeah, the exactly. Question. It's okay. the last Christmas because the apocalypse happens at the end of the film. They should have called it Lost Christmas. Uh, Terrence Malick has a new movie coming out. Yeah, so I didn't see this, but was there like a big beef on Twitter about how Malick's bad? Yeah, there was. I, I don't. <sighs> Do you not want to be the Twitter sheriff? Well, I definitely don't want to be the Twitter sheriff. And yeah. as you know, I am not the Twitter sheriff. Uh, the new movie is called The Hidden Life, and it's about a conscientious objector, objector during World War II, a German man. Played by... Hellstrom from Inglorious Bastards. Yes, it is. Uh, Reverse heel turn. Yes. Uh, that. What is that actor's name? I think it's August Deal. August Deal. That's correct. Yeah. And this movie also, I would say, it was lauded at Cannes and was picked up by Fox Searchlight and is being distributed. And, you know, Terrence Malick has not exactly had his full-blown Oscar moment. So there's an expectation that this could finally be his. There was a little bit of hubbub on the internet about whether Terrence Malick is actually bad. The truth is, is that like all filmmakers, sometimes Terrence Malick is good and sometimes he is bad. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he is interesting, but does his films don't work. This movie, I, using it as an opportunity to interrogate his value as a human makes me want to gouge my eyes out. Mm-hmm. I, I look forward to the film. Uh, there, are all, there are instantaneously shots of a hand 
being run across grass in this trailer. Yeah. This happens in every Terrence Malick movie. We do this conversation every single time. Yeah. There's even some of the same, like, kind of, like, movements in the living room of a young family that happen in Tree of Life. Yeah. Yeah, and narration that feels like a, a letter written to a loved one. You know, it's, he has hallmarks. It's called style. You know, the same way that Martin Scorsese has needle drops from 60s doo-wop songs. Yeah. Terrence Malick, he likes to run his hands over some grass. Do you have a favorite non-Badlands, non-Days of Heaven Malick? Hmm. Well, tree. I, I love Tree of Life. Mm-hmm. I, I recognize the pretensions of Tree of Life, and I don't think everything about it works. I'm not totally sure what's going on with Sean Penn and Tree of Life, but all of the Brad Pitt, Chastain, memories of a childhood stuff, I think is among the best work he's ever done. Um, and I have admiration for The New World and The Thin Red Line. What yeah, about you? I'm a big Thin Red Line guy. I was very thrown off by it when I first saw it, um, but I, I thought it was, I, I in retrospect, I think it's like a really moving war film. Yeah, I think very it is Very unique too. too, I feel like. My Days of Heaven is my favorite by far. Oh, yeah. I think that that's the, one of the... That's like one of the great, great American great, movies. Great films ever yeah. made, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll see what happens with The Hidden Life. I'm sure we'll be talking about it again. I I, I can I could sense Amanda, the, the the phantom of Amanda, sighing through the, the Malikian conversation. But the thing that's interesting about Little Women, Parasite, Hidden Life... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I don't think Last Christmas is an Oscar film. No, I, I, no. Like, feel free to come, come back with uh, freezing cold takes on me like that. <laughs> but... All the it, we got our first batch of like Oscar trailers this week, right? Because 1917 presumably will also be in the mix. Yeah. So 1917, which we, has gone sort of unremarked upon, which is Sam Mendes' new movie, his first post Bond film. Yeah. And there's you know the big rumor about this movie, right? Did Sam Mendes wear a scarf during production? <laughs> no, that's not rumor. That's fact. Um, that it's a one take movie. Deacons. There's a chance they that just didn't cut. They, they were didn't just like, cut. Let Roger Cook. It's 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 possible. I have gotten neither confirmation nor denial on this on this th- story. Okay. Now it's mostly a a series of young British, handsome British male actors, and then a handful of names you will recognize: Colin Firth, Benedict Cumberbatch, those types. World War One story, obviously. Um, this has been done before. There was a movie, of, I think, 2015 called Victoria, a Russian film that was uh, all in one take kind of thing. And it was successful, and it was inventive. Uh, this would be a bit different. This would this is harder to pull off. A war movie in one take is, I don't know. Maybe maybe unreasonable expectations are being set, and it's not one take. It just look maybe it's just more of a Birdman effect that it, where it feels like one take. Yeah, but I'm excited. So right. it's a story apparently that Mendes heard from his grandfather mm-hmm. that was told to him about the idea, and it was like it's basically a messenger, messenger story, uh, a, like young soldiers given a mission to get to the front line to, to to trench warfare, and to get to the to the front and tell another British officer not to go forward with a you know going over the wall kind of military move, and if he doesn't do it, I think he's but I can't remember what the number is in the trailer, but he's like sixteen hundred people will die if you don't get this message to this person. So I obviously it's like a really compressed storyline. Um I am actually like kind of agnostic about Sam Mendes as like a filmmaker. You know, I uh, I think I it's I don't really ever I actually just don't think about him. I like Skyfall a lot and watch it whenever it's on cable, but other than that, can't say that I'm like dialing up Jarhead or anything like that. Um, That's true. I think he does not have a he doesn't have a legacy amongst you know cinephiles yeah. as a great filmmaker. I Maybe, think his like major film has been pretty much like swept under the historical rug. Yeah, in American kind of Beauty. dismantled yeah. in a lot of ways. American yeah. Beauty, but his, the films that followed that, some of them I think are very successful, and some of them I do not like at all. Road to Perdition, which is 
really well made. Yeah. Speaking of Deacons, kind of beautifully shot, interesting film. I think it's it maybe Paul Newman's last performance. Mm-hmm. Um, Jarhead, you mentioned. I still love Revolutionary Road. I, yeah, I think that's, that's my, good. I feel like that's an unpopular opinion nowadays. I think that that's one of the great two-hander performances. Plus, you've got that great Michael Shen and oh, supporting yeah. performance. That was pretty much like a career maker for Yeah. Him. And then he made Away We Go, which the less said about the better, I right. think. And then Skyfall and Spectre. Skyfall's phenomenal. Spectre's not very good. Yeah, that's interesting. To be considered like a really me- a big deal filmmaker and kind of have that resume. I guess Skyfall will will buy you a lot of credit. I think it did, yeah. And 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 frankly, it, it deserves to. And it's it, worth it's noting, great. like, he also has like a major role in British theater and yes. actually has like very deep connections across, you know, like with, it seems like he works very well with actors, so. Very much so. There's, there's a huge uh, New Yorker profile about him, I think, last year mm-hmm. uh, that is mostly focused on his work as a director of the stage. 1917, we'll see. I'm okay. looking forward to it. You, so you, I, I, we just did these five. Yeah. I don't feel like you're hot for any of them. I'm not. And Well, Parasite. Okay. But I don't think Parasite's going to be a best picture candidate. Wow, I can't, I can't believe you're coming in cold arm on Little Women. Well, I just got to be honest with myself. I know what kind of things that I connect to and what kind of things I don't. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't cover it religiously here on the show. We will. We'll definitely talk about it. It's going to matter. Greta's the best. I wish she was doing something different. Like I, don't hold, I don't hold it against Hobbs her. Hobbs and Shaw too. I would pay to see it. I would certainly pay to see it. Um, I think she she she's shown a real knack for contemporary life that I find interesting. You know, her her performances and her yeah, writing. You, you love when people like go back into history and see like see we're not that different. Things things haven't changed that much. Not that that might, that might be bad for society, but like when you say like look like people have the same struggles. Speaking of bad for society and uh, the differences <laughs> between people, you've set up a beautiful segue into the hunt. Which is something that I did not address earlier on the show this week, though I think it would be strange to leave it unremarked upon. Yeah. The Hunt, of course, is the Universal Pictures Blumhouse production that was canceled yeah. in the aftermath and of I don't, some hubbub. Not rhetorically. No, 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 not, not at all rhetorically. Quite literally. And, you know, this is, of course, in the aftermath of the, the awful shootings that we experienced in this country two weeks ago. And then the, I guess, inevitable... Uh, rhetorical cycle that we experienced yeah. from both sides, but particularly from the president who I guess was made aware of the release of this film and perhaps misunderstood what this film was about, which then led to a... But never fo- named the movie specifically. He did not. There Correct. were Fox News stories about it. Exactly. And I guess the the heat on the film, which had already decided to shelve its its marketing and advertising strategy in the aftermath of these tragic events, has pulled it completely from the schedule. This isn't utterly unprecedented, but it is very rare. And I think a movie company bending its knee to a controversy like this is kind of fascinating. I mean, what did you make of that? You're a fan of Blumhouse films. You are interested in the kind of story that this is, which we should just say quickly is essentially a satire about violence in which wealthy liberals enlist quote-unquote deplorables. Well, okay, so I don't... One thing that's worth noting about this is that we actually don't have a lot of specific information about what the movie's about or what the screen You're right. is about. We haven't seen it. It kind of got out of control where there is, you know, like there's pieces in The Hollywood Reporter that have parts from the screenplay quoted. The screenplay was written by Damon Lindelof and Nick Cuse, who obviously, if you, Damon Lindelof is behind Lost and The Leftovers and the forthcoming Watchmen show on HBO. Um, and I think it's kind of gotten a little bit away from everybody here where, you know, it is being pitched as liberal elites hunting deplorable deplorables whereas in reality like from what we know 
we don't actually know that that is the way that, that it's posited. Now, I think also it was rumored that the film was at once called Red State versus Blue State or Red State Blue State or something like that. So obviously there's a political component to it. I would just say that, um, you know, I don't think... It appears that when we were wondering a couple of years ago whether or not art would respond to the political moment, I don't know if it can do that. I don't know if it can do that and actually get a fair shake in any way, shape, or form. Because, you know, uh, one movie that I was really hoping, if we don't talk about it today, I hope we get to talk about it in the future, was this movie Loose. I do want to talk and about I was it. Let's use about this it. as an opportunity. And um, Loose is one of the most provocative uh you know, thought-provoking films I've seen in a really long time and was mesmerizing from the moment it starts to the moment it ends. And I was talking with my wife and I was like, I wonder what would happen if that movie, because it starts Tim Roth and Naomi Watts. And I was like, I wonder what would happen if that was like Robert Downey Jr. and um, Scarlett Johansson were the stars of it or Robert Downey, like mega stars were starring in the movie and it got a lot more attention. American mega stars. Yeah. And so I, it, it, it's a very interesting time to, to actually have films that are dialed to evoke like a kind of like a kind of like very passionate and or like um, territorial response from people like this. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, the last time I can remember something like this, it was weirdly on similar terms. It was the interview, James Franco and Seth Rogen's uh, story about assassinating Kim Jong-un, which was, of course more comedic and more over the top than The Hunt is meant to be, which is meant to be, I think, a little bit more grindhouse, exploitation, Blumhouse kind of a movie. But to your point about whether or not we can respond to to the world with art, I don't think that movies can. Because movies take a long time to make. Mm -hmm. And they take a long time to market. And they take a long time to release. And the idea of being instantaneously reactive is impossible. Now, they have been reactive in this case by removing the film from release, I don't really know what that I don't know what that does. I don't I really don't know what that accomplishes in a lot of ways. I mean the movie is directed by Craig Zobel, we should say, who made a, a actually a similarly provocative movie called Compliance yeah. that's 5 or 6 years ago to Loose and you know he also made a movie called Z for Zachariah and he seems to have a real sense of the kind of acid dipped what's really wrong with us at our core. Yeah. That seems to be a, a real point of interest for him. And, you know, Loose is a movie that is also pursuing that. You know, it's hard to talk about that movie without knowing that people have seen it. And it's only been in a small number of theaters. But, and I did mention a bit on the show earlier this week, but it's one of those films that is not definitive. Yeah. It is nuanced. I haven't had a conversation with someone after the movie like I did after Loose in a very long time. Not only in terms of like, what do you think that movie was about, but actually literally like what happened in a way that I think you're supposed to have that conversation after where you're like, how much did character, how much do characters know at any given moment? At what point was this thing turning one way or another? Um, you know, I, I would just recommend it to anyone who can hear this podcast. It was just one of the most interesting movies I've seen this year. I completely agree. And it's very similar in the sense that, um, there's, it's not binary. Mm -hmm. You know, the hunt controversy is binary. It's literally binary in the way it's telling the story, red state versus blue state. But this is a, should it be released or should it not be released is too fraught a conversation. I, I, we cannot be definitive about these feelings. It's, I felt similarly exasperated by the conversation around whether video games lead to violence in, in, yeah, in we're back shooting in the sprees. Wars. Yeah, I grew up in this. Exactly. You know? And I, I'm anticipating potentially a similar situation with Jojo Rabbit, which is Taika Waititi's new film that is coming out later this year. It'll be premiering at all the fall festivals. 
And it is also a satire that features Taika playing Hitler in Germany. It is He has dubbed it an anti-hate satire. There's already rumblings that some Disney executives who recently purchased Fox are not totally comfortable with the way that this movie is being positioned. It's certainly not a historically the way a Disney movie looks and sounds. I I think we're we are potentially in 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 store for a long fall. Well, I think also we're we're in unprecedented, possibly unprecedented because of the levels of social media, uh, the way that social media could communicate these ideas, like a, a brave, awful new world of misinformation. So by the time records can get corrected or by the time anyone actually sees Jojo Rabbit or anyone actually sees The Hunt and is like, hey, just so you know, The Hunt is basically like the most dangerous game, which is a movie like, you know, like it's these movies come out like once every 10 years, someone like does something like this. By the time any of that gets corrected, it's too late. You know, Mm -hmm. so if there if if the and if you add Jojo Rabbit, which has been earmarked as an Oscar, as an awards contender. For months. Put that into the awards sausage making machine of counter campaigns against other awards candidates. It's going to be like pretty radioactive. Between that and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's going to be quite a show for the next six months. So I am I am buckled in. You know, the controversy that Disney is potentially fearful of regarding Jojo Rabbit is notable because Jojo Rabbit is a Fox Searchlight release as well. Disney's relationship to Fox seems to be somewhat complex at this exact moment. Of course, the merger happened earlier this year. Since the merger, none of the Fox films have succeeded at all. There's a couple of reasons for that. Disney CEO and, or chairman Bob Iger noted that um, this is part of the reason why Disney's stock was down, their earnings were down. Th- that was call. considered like a very public dunking. It was. I think what it does is probably puts them in a long-term position, position to succeed once the Iger machine takes over Fox production, then all of a sudden they start marking W's, it'll be fine. But if you go down the list, you know, I, I mentioned on the show recently, I saw Tolkien the other day. That was That's a real dog. Mm-hmm. Just not a good film. Dark Phoenix, of course, you and I have talked about this movie at length. The Art of Racing in the Rain was released last weekend. Did you go see that? No, that's no. like a Marley and Me, but like a, dog, a car, right? Yeah, Kevin Costner voices a dog owned by Milo Ventimiglia. Yeah. What do you think? I like both of those guys, but I don't like them to check the movie out. Okay, Stuber, which is a movie I kind of liked, but completely bombed. And then we got two big ones this fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you and I are pretty pumped for. Ad Astra, which is James Gray's intergalactic daddy issues movie starring Brad Pitt. And Ford versus Ferrari, perhaps my most anticipated movie of the fall. James Mangold's story of um, Ford versus Ferrari. If these movies fail, does that mean anything? Does it matter to you? Uh, it matters to me because I would like movies like Ad Astra and Ford versus Ferrari to continue to be made. So that to that extent, it does. I think it's interesting to me because Disney is some as a company that even with its subsidiaries like Marvel and Pixar has so much control over both how the product is distributed in relation to the other things that Disney is doing. So you know you see Star Wars making room around and Marvel making room around Star Wars and Disney, and like they they are very sensitive about how they're releasing stuff. I think that. Um, they're obviously learning that there is an insatiable thirst for revisiting old properties in the Disney library and are probably feeling very strong about like the cards that they're holding. And if you're trying to come, come to them with an original idea or a history, a historical film about car racing or an original story about space that deals with existential questions about our purpose in the universe, 
they might be like, I don't understand. Like, if you're going to do that, just make the remake the black hole. You know, remake, do something with it with what we've got here because that's what we're dealing with. And I don't, you know, I don't know what Disney's going to be like as a landlord. It's going to be very interesting to see. I mean, they've done right by Marvel. You know, Pixar didn't wasn't always fully owned by Disney. Right. You know what I mean? They were partners at a time, and then they were fully purchased. So they've always worked well with companies that they have absorbed. Not always, but especially in recent times under the Iger tenure, they have. And they've got a lot of properties. I, it, someone recently noted, I thought this was interesting. I think it was um, Scott Mendelson in Forbes that next winter, Dune is coming out. Mm-hmm. And it's a big move by Warner Brothers to put Dune out next December because for the next 10 years, Disney slash Fox has earmarked the place for the big Christmas blockbuster release. Of course, this Christmas, we will get The Rise of Skywalker. The one after that, we'll get Avatar. The one after that, we'll get the next Star Wars Wars saga. The one after that, Avatar. Then Star Wars. Then Avatar. That is what they have mapped out. So Warner Brothers' bid to kind of beat back the Disney machine is to bet on what originally started, I think, as a standalone Dune movie and now sounds like they're doing might it. become a HBO number Max, of films. Sisters of Dune show. It's the same thing across the board. CBS Viacom have already announced they're investigating what they can do with Star Trek and Mission Impossible as cross-platform properties that are living, like basically creating their own Marvel universes out of Star Trek. Yes. I think there are something like, there's three Star Treks currently like about to hit either on or about to hit CBS all access. There's still this Quentin Tarantino R rated Star Trek movie floating around yeah, Pulp Trek. an animated Star Trek coming. And I'm sure they will start to say, why don't we just do the James T Kirk show? And why don't we just do a Spock show or whatever? Um, so we're just going to see like a more and more of these things that we, nobody ever thought might be able to support seven, eight shows at once and a movie. We'll, we'll start to be that. Do you feel exasperated? Um, I have no interest in like, I, I just, I don't find that many stories to be that interesting in that way. I mean, the, I don't think they're understanding necessarily that the specific value of Marvel is the already existing serialized storytelling that ha- was was within the comic books. Um, Dune is like a very like limited proposition. I mean, people love fucking Dune. My mom's read Dune like a hundred times. Dune's really cool. I don't know if I want to spend 20 years in Dune though. We're going to find out because we might have to. <laughs> yeah. Should we make a hard transition to our next segment? Yeah. Yeah, man. So let's talk about this. So I think, so is this a generational thing or do you think you were just never a Bruce guy? Well, I'll tell you a story. You sound yeah. like Bruce Springsteen. Yes. And it's about fathers. My dad got remarried in the 90s. And I remember when he was getting remarried, his girlfriend, then fiance, then wife at the time, he was a huge Bruce fan. Colleen loved Bruce. And she would say, you got to love the boss, the boss. And my dad would say, who's he the boss of? He's not the boss of me. Did he really say that? He would really say that. And (laughs) He sounds like Johnny Greenbook. (laughs) He does. My father is a police officer from Long Island, so you'll forgive him. Uh, But I always got a kick out of it. And it became a bit pretty quickly in the house. He's not, who's he the boss of? He's not the boss of me. And he was always kind of like the boss, Eh, whatever. My dad is a big like Clapton guy. You know, that's really more my dad's sound. Cool. And so... I didn't, that, that indicates that I didn't grow up with Bruce. Bruce wasn't on in the house as a kid. And I think by the time I was an adolescent that, was, that would discover Bruce, yeah, Bruce like was in kind of a weird period. Tunnel of love and then like basically kind of... Yeah, Ghost of Tom Joad yeah. is kind of happening. Like he's not in a highly commercial period. So 
just that handful of years older that you are than me, I think actually probably makes a little bit of a difference there where like you probably got, you were probably a little closer to Born in the USA media. I was. I mean, Born in the USA came during that same year of of Madonna and Prince and Michael Jackson. So those were like the four Mount Rushmore summer, summer totems. Uh, and also just growing up, so I went to a school that was kindergarten through 12th grade. So the older kids, there were older kids who were into earlier Bruce. And then Philly had two pretty vibrant classic rock radio stations, WMMR and WYSP, that would, you know, you would just turn it on and they would be playing like all of Rosalita, you know? Like, so it wouldn't be uncommon to hear stuff from Asbury Park or or Born to Run um, in the 80s. And I never really understood him, though. Like, I never really looked at him as, like, a, a real artist when I was a kid. It was only when I moved to Boston and I met some guys who were musicians who were, like, obsessed with him and were like, you know, this the live E Street Band thing is, like, basically the best live album ever made. And, you know, you got to check out Nebraska. And Nebraska was, like, the, I think is the gateway drug for a lot of people where they're like, oh, I know Born in the USA, but I'm not really sure, like, how I feel about him. And then they hear Nebraska and they're like, holy shit. This guy's. In fact, I, I did that exact thing yeah. for Bobby Wagner yesterday, our producer. I said to him, "If you don't, if you don't respond to the bombast, consider Nebraska. It's kind of the like, it's a little bit of the hipster rock critic, indie rock gateway drug too. Yeah. I think you have it's to also, be like it was such a, interested. He's such a, got such an interesting career because he has made these left turns before. Because he did come off of being one of the biggest rock stars in the world, and he makes essentially like a four-track lo-fi bedroom folk album about state troopers in the in the, the plains and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I've always found him very um, stimulating as an artist. And then there's like just such a wealth of stuff to find that you can just kind of like let Bruce Springsteen playlists go. There's a really great one on Spotify if people have an account. It's called uh, An Opera Out on the Turnpike, and it's a playlist that Greg Dooley from the Afghan Wigs put together that I, I listen to a lot. It's really, really good selection. So what would you say your relationship is to him now as an artist? Because he's still, I, honestly, as active as he's ever been. He did a Broadway show last year. He yeah. just released a new record. They're on tour, I think, right? Yeah, there's a new film coming out that he co-directed with Tom Zimney. Like, he is... In his, I think he's in his late 60s and he is in the prime of his creative life. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, my Bruce Springsteen songs are like fairly obvious. I think he's one of those artists that I don't think for Dylan, I would say my favorite songs are like Blown in the Wind and Like a Rolling Stone. But with Springsteen, they're closer to that. You it's, like the classics. I kind of do. Yeah. Um, I am not like constantly on top of it with new Bruce, but I really have enjoyed some of the archival stuff he's done recently. Like, the Ties That Bind, which is a collection of songs that he did during the recording of The River, um, is is one of the f- best things I've heard in the last couple of years. And he put out a record a couple of years ago called The Promise, which included a lot of, they like, had a really good st- stuff. So, yeah, I mean, he's awesome. I like Bruce Springsteen a lot. <laughs> I do too. And I've I've grown into him in a way. And it's also worth saying that for you and I, uh, it is inescapable for where we grew up. A hundred percent. I think I suspect that part of the reason I didn't respond to him through my, I don't know, probably until about 25, is that you're routinely being told he's the best. Mm-hmm. And, you know, an emotional money baller like me doesn't really, doesn't really respond Nobody's to that. Nobody's the boss. Nobody's the boss. Nobody's the, there's no boss. That's the thing. There's no boss of anybody. Right. And I, I probably, I, the, the experience I had watching the movie, Blinded by the Light, which takes pains to literally put the words that he wrote on screen mm-hmm. to show you what his lyrics are like. 
is similar to something that happened to me as somebody who was hearing the music much later on in life, which is you can hear Dancing in the Dark or Born in the USA like you could hear the Star Spangled Banner. Mm -hmm. It's just the melody that is ingrained inside of you, especially if you're from New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, you know, Massachusetts. Like in that eastern seaboard, Bruce is a lifestyle. Yeah. And so at, at a certain point, it just becomes wallpaper. And then you go back and you listen to the words of Dancing in the Dark, which is one of the most pained songs ever written. It is it is a wrenching story about a person struggling. Yeah. It is not a party song. It's yeah. not an exultation. Yeah. And it's taken me a long time to kind of go back through those songs. And so that's part of the reason why. And I'll, I'll say straightforwardly, like, my list is not your deep cuts du jour, you know? Right. I There are some, like modestly interesting picks here, but they're pretty classic, especially among, like, your second-degree sure. Bruce fan. Yeah. You know, I, I when Gorinder was here, she let me know that um, Spring Nuts is what people who are obsessed with Bruce Springsteen call oh, themselves. I didn't know that. I didn't like know that either. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't think that they're going to really respect my list. You know, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't noted the, you know, which live version I, I'm referring to here. So when Little Women Hive is done with you yeah. <laughs> and Bong Hive is done with you, yeah. then hashtag Spring Nuts are going to be in your mentions. Yes. Time me to the train tracks, Little Women Hive. Do you want to talk about your number five? It's still in car. I'm driving a stolen car Down on every Avenue Each night I wait yeah, actually, I like that song. He's a really good short story writer. Yeah. And he's like really good at character and narrative and economically telling like a story about usually a guy who's kind of like on his last chance. He's got a girl and he might have to do a favor for somebody. You know, that's how so Stolen Car is just an incredible portrait of um kind of like a life, like a desolate life and a guy who's who's kind of running out of chances. This is a great one. Stone Car, that's from The River, right? Yeah, it's from, yeah. And there's different versions of it on Ties of Bind. So I'm curious if The River is your favorite Bruce album. Because I um, feel like it fuses I listened the two to Nebraska things. so much mm. in my early 20s that I think I can't even hear it anymore. Um, I would say I've spent the most time with The River in the last five or six years. Yeah, I feel like that is the one for me that tends to fuse my interest in him. It's also worth noting that the river sounded like shit for a while on CD. Hmm. Um it was a it was like a bad digital transfer, a kind of casualty of that early in the early days and I I'm not like a big audiophile but that was one of the records that I needed to discover on vinyl to realize there was like a lower end to the band. Yeah, I don't I I came to it so late that by the time I got around to it it was probably remastered and sounding perfect. Yeah. And it sounds kind of perfect now. And The Ties of Bind, as you said, is a great companion if you want to dig deeper into that period, which is about 1980 or mm -hmm. so. Um, and he was like, he was he was taking some stuff that he was hearing from like Elvis Costello and punk and and he it was it's a very tapped in record, I think. That's a very good point about him too, which is that even though every Bruce song is unmistakably Bruce and that kind of like guttural wail and that deep sincerity, that almost unbearable sincerity at times. You can feel him picking and choosing. Mm -hmm. He's not like uh, Joe Strummer, who, if he's like, I like how that sounds, and then he just puts the sound into his Clash song. Yeah. He finds a way to let the Bruce Springsteen E Street Band song, like, envelop the influence. And I always, I kind of like that about him. And so my number five is Adam Raised the Cane. Well, the same hot blood, 
think is probably the most metal Bruce has ever yeah. gotten. Yeah. And I love the idea of like a hard rock Bruce listening to like Zeppelin and finding a way to make it his song and still a song about fathers and sons and still a song that is kind of true to his anxieties and interests and, and like emotional bandwidth. But putting like a ripcord lick on it yeah. too, which I, I feel like he maybe doesn't do as much as I would like him to do. I think that might be another reason why he ne- he never quite slotted into my classic rock hierarchy. I don't know what would have happened if he hadn't become one of the biggest artists in the world, you know, because I don't know what happens to his sound. I think he has a very specific idea about what he could do. I mean, he's obviously drawing a lot from Phil Spector. He's drawing a lot from 60s pop like Motown and then he's he's like infusing that with classic rock. But those songs, especially the 80s songs like Born in the USA, had a sense of radio and had a sense of like what this song would mean in someone's life yes. that is kind of a pop me- like genius to do that. That that kind of is perfect for my fourth song actually. What is it? I'm on fire. Hey, little girl, is your daddy home? Did he go and leave you all alone? I got a bad desire. Oh, I'm on fire. Yeah. Uh, which is probably one of my favorite love songs. Um, and is basically just like a Roy Orbison hymn, but done as, uh, as, as like a, a U2 song. You know, done as a New Wave song. I'm on Fire is uh, born in the USA era. Mm-hmm. Do you remember connecting with the idea of the album back then when something like that was going around, or was well, he a singles artist too? No, I mean, you know, that was that was that was one of the he was one of the first album artists. This and Purple Rain were the ones where I was like, so there's songs that aren't on the radio, and then of course, also radio was so desperate for that that they would just play "I'm Going Down." Yes. They, and just the same way they would play Take Me With You from Purple Rain, they would play like the seventh song that wasn't even a single. They'd be like, man, we're just going to play five Prince songs. Like, I, he, I, he, You're right. Him, Prince, R.E.M., and U2 were the artists who yeah. you would get the, the, the classic iconic album and you'd be like, oh, the ninth song is also amazing. Yeah. And you'd hear it once every hundred days on the radio, but it, it would fit in just as well as where the streets have no name or where you know, born in the USA fits. Or you'd find out like, because you're an idiot kid and they'd play, I'm going down for the first time. And you'd be like, wait, what is this? And then you'd realize you just hadn't listened that far into the record because you just kept listening to Glory Days and Born in the USA. So yeah, yeah, I'm on fire is my number four. We go down to the river and into the river we die. So my number four is the river. We've already talked about that period for him. That's kind of the opposite of what you're saying. I think the river is the last song on the first side of the double album. Um, so you have to go through the, first, the that whole record. But um, I think that's a little bit of a a good crash course into the quote unquote real Bruce. You know the like the Bruce that that Bill Simmons has talked about a little bit. The guy who is on stage at the Odeon screaming into the mic about what his dad did to him (laughs) or about, you know, what it's like to tune up a car and change your life or what happens when you get married pregnant. Um, It's worth noting for that Odeon thing made me think is that, and this is something that's, I don't, I mean, I'm sure that this this is still the case, but there was this, the idea of seeing him live and that being like something that people basically like constructed their free time around was to, if Springsteen was on tour, it would be like, I'm going to go see Springsteen four times. 
Uh, and each night he's going to play for four and a half hours and play 12 Motown covers and then just do like a 30 minute version of Born to Run. It's like, it was like kind of like a event, you know? And, and a lot of the film Blinded by the Light is oriented around that. And Safraz, who wrote the, the memoir that the film is based on, has seen Bruce over 150 times yeah. and has sat in the front row over 50 times and has has literally committed yeah. the free, the, the stray moments of his life to spending time with this artist. There's very few people that you can say that about. That's I'm, the dead. The dead, that's a good example. I mean, even the iconic artists, like we've already talked about the Beatles on this show this year. We've already talked about Bob Dylan on the show this year. Those artists you almost can't have that same relationship to. Obviously, well, I don't even don't think exist that, I, anymore. I, I don't really think the Stones even had a reputation. Like they had a chaotic and sort of electric live reputation, but not that idea of creating a lifestyle around going to see them. Yes, and at least by the time I was of age, they were like out of my price bracket to go see the Stones because they were like these stadium rock. Like they're playing Tattoo You or like Voodoo Lounge or whatever, and it's it's just like you breaking the bank to go see them at the vet or something. Yeah, Bruce, for whatever reason, has a different relationship. And, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong about this, because I'm not the kind of person that follows this closely, but doesn't he also not charge as much as, say, the Eagles for his concerts? I'm not sure. I wouldn't want to disparage Don Henley. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Noted. Uh, number three. Uh, Atlantic City. Gonna be a crumble out on the promenade and the gambling Hanging on by the skin of its teeth. Well, now everything dies, baby. That's a fact. Maybe everything that dies someday comes back. Put your makeup on, fix your hair pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City. And this is my number two. Yeah, it's a pretty fucking good song. Pretty great song. <laughs> Recently used in the opening segment. Uh, of a Billions episode yeah. this season. No shit. <laughs> in which there was a character literally known as the Chicken Man. <laughs> so shout out to Compliment and Levine there. Uh, just what an amazing song. Yeah, and if you haven't heard the Live in NYC uh, album, which I think was recorded... Was that recorded shortly after 9-11? I can't remember when that I came out. that's right. Uh, there is a version of Atlantic City that is like a version that he does live. Um that is at once like, I think it's got like mandolin and it's kind of like a folk rock song for a while. And then it turns into a Sam Cooke song midway through mm. and it's just unbelievable. Yeah, truly one of the great live artists of all time. My number three, speaking of live performances, Rosalie to come out tonight. There you go. Spread out now, Rosalie, doctor, come cut loose her mama's reign. You know, playing blind man's love is a little baby's game. I guess this is probably the kind of like live Springsteen's fans call to arms, right? It's kind of the the rallying cry. He's closed with this song many times over the years. He's made it the first song in the encore many times over the years. It's from The Wild, The Innocent, and The East Street Shuffle, which is only his second album from 1973, which is a pretty great album, but is considered a time when he hadn't yet, like, figured out his own mythology. You know, he's writing much more like Bob Dylan than he is like Bruce Springsteen during this period, and he's kind of obsessed with Dylan and Van Morrison and these other iconoclastic single male figures of of great poetry and 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 um, searching for meaning in the, in their music, but Rosalita is like kind of a party song mm-hmm. and it's a great kind of a hoedown and 
I, I like the idea of there being like one different kind of song for each of my yeah. five. So he's so got the, such a myriad of choices. That's your three. Two is Atlantic, two is Atlantic City. City. My two, two is Brilliant Disguise. Yeah, tell me why. Because I'm 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 pretty into fucking dad rock. I'm pretty into some clean drum sounds. Anyone who saw the title on this podcast was already aware of that. This Chris. song is astonishing. <laughs> is this on Dooley's list? It is, right? Uh, yeah. I think this is like generally, I, in terms of like, I don't get really into the Great American Songbook. Like, I don't really like bang a lot of Cole Porter, but this belongs in there. Wow, Burning Disguise is an unbelievable. Love song. This is from Tunnel of Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you are you the kind of Bruce fan that connects with Tunnel of Love and is like this is secretly the best one? Now I do. <laughs> well, I, I know that Gurinder and Safraz <laughs> connected over Tunnel of Love because yeah. not a lot of heads. You know, you really you got to be a real fan to ride for that one. Yeah. That's when the the bolo tie came in and Bruce kind of changed his look. Gone went the jean jacket and the cutoffs and all that. In came good suits, black suits, yeah, white button downs, the bolo. You should get a bolo a little going. Synth, yeah, yeah, a little synth, yeah. You, there's something romantic in in all your Bruce choices. Yeah, he's a romantic artist. Have you ever sung a Bruce song to a woman? Uh, I think I've done Bruce Springsteen and karaoke, so there probably were women there, but not like as a specific <laughs> like Cyrano de Bergerac kind of thing. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, What's your number one? My number one is Backstreets. Hard to not do a Born to Run song. Mm-hmm. The guttural whale that I was referring to earlier is the thing that I have become most excited about. And Backstreets features the all-time Bruce vocal performance, in my opinion, when he lets it rip. When the after the very sort of slow, almost dirge-like piano intro, and then first verse, and then he lets co- the chorus rip, and you can feel him reaching down beneath his lungs, trying to f- get all the air. And and let loose, um, it's ecstatic. It's a very unique ability to make people thrilled by the sound of their voice. So, I'm going Backstreets on a purely visceral level. Uh, I'm gonna go. My number one song is Loose End. A song that you can find on the on, a, on the, the ties that bind, and it was originally released on Tracks, which is a box set that came out a while ago, a long time ago. And when I moved in with a bunch of guys in Boston who were all in a band, there was a guy named Drew O'Doherty, who's also a really great songwriter musician. And we were hanging out, and Drew was basically like his two favorite things of the world, three favorite things of the world: Nick Drake, Fugazi, and Bruce, Bruce Springsteen. And I was kind of like, trio. yeah, and I was like. I get the Nick Drake thing. I get the Fugazi thing. I'm kind of trying to wrap my head around like what aside from the singles. And he was the one who really got me into Atlantic City. And he was the one who played me Loose End for the first time, if I'm remembering this correctly, because it was 
practically 20 years ago now. But it was like, I, I couldn't believe that that was like a song that just didn't make an album. It is this spectacular Phil Spector rock song. And it is so sad and so desperate and so heartbreaking. And if you haven't heard it, if you can, please listen to it. Loose End is astonishing. It is easily my favorite Bruce Springsteen song. What else do you need to say about Bruce? Where does Bruce stand on the hunt? Release the hunt, Bruce? Why isn't he commented yet? You want to add him? <laughs> is Bruce on Twitter? Probably not. He's got better things to do. He does have better things to do. We have better things to do on this show as well, which is to get to my interview with Grinder Chata. Chris, will you come back soon and, and chat with me on The Big Picture? I'll do whatever you need me to do. I love having you here. Thank you. I'm delighted to be joined by Grinder Chata today. Grinder is the co-writer and producer, and of course, the director of the new movie, Blinded by the Light. She is wearing a Bruce Springsteen t-shirt. That is for one reason, and that's because Bruce Springsteen is a key part of this film. Grinder, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. Lovely to be here. So, you know, Grinder, this is based in part on uh, Sarfraz Manzor's memoir. Yeah. And you guys have been friends for a long time, I yeah. know. And I'm kind of wondering when you first bonded over Bruce. When did it become clear that you two shared something? Um. Well, I had liked him since I was at school. That's when I was first introduced to Bruce. And I went to see him live in 1985 in England. Um, and then I read an article in a newspaper uh, written by Safraz, uh, which had a bizarre picture in it with him sort of doing an original selfie before selfies were invented, you know, with a camera. And he had the, the, the picture, he was in the frame and in the background was Bruce looking like he was caught in the headlights. And that was the image that I saw in the paper. And I was like, oh my God. God, what is this? And then I saw his name and I said, there's another Asian person who likes Bruce Springsteen in the United Kingdom. Wow. And then I got in touch and then we just used to talk about Bruce all the time. And, and was that uncommon? Because in the film, it, it's shown that yeah. uh, you know your friend's experience was that that was extraordinarily uncommon. Why was that uncommon for you? What kind of an environment did you grow up in? What kind of schools did you attend? Well, I just went to a regular school in London. You know, my life is very much the life of Bend It Like Beckham. Mm -hmm. That's kind of me and my parents, if you like. Um, and I, I think just everyone thinks it. It's really unusual that I like Bruce Springsteen. Everyone's surprised by it. You know, I don't know. That's just people think that. But for me, it was uh, a very important part of my life. But everyone has me down to like other things, I guess. And so they're surprised. Even now, even though I've made this movie, people don't think that I was a fan of his. And in fact, in uh, 2004, when I made my movie Bride and Prejudice, I was re-looking at some old interviews for some research. And in that interview from 2005, one of the questions I'm asked is, which artist would you most like to work with? And I say, hands down, slam dunk Bruce Springsteen. He means a lot to me and I would love to work with him. So that was before we'd even had any idea of making a movie or anything. That's so interesting. Did you have a perception of what kind of a thing you would have wanted to do with him before this came along? Or were you just saying that this is somebody that I connect to and I want to work with? Yeah, basically. That's I just it. made Bender like Beckham. I think it might have something to do with Philadelphia, mm. you know? So that was a fantastic film. I loved that film. So it might have been something to do with me thinking, wow, I wish I could do something like that, you know? So we know that this is Safra's story, but how do you also make a movie like this, which is very autobiographical, memoiristic, mm. also your story? How do you integrate your experiences <laughs> into something that seems so uniquely personal? Well, Safra's told me he was writing his memoir, and I said, this is fantastic. And when he gave me the galleys before it was published, I said to him, I know how to make a movie out of this. 
fantastic movie. But, you know, we have to make some changes. And and he was doing the thing that we all do, you know, people of colour, we try and protect our parents and our community. So he'd taken all the drama out of it and all the conflict and made it very much about very geeky Bruce, but also racism, also, you know, his life. But I said, I need to put that conflict back in. I also need to move it away from you. Although you are the inspiration for the story, I need to make it transcend you in some ways. Um, and so I started working on it with him and I introduced a girlfriend. Uh, he would never have had a girlfriend at that time. He's far too geeky. <laughs> um, I introduced conflicts with his father, scenes of, of you know, drama, and he would never have spoken out to his father. If there'd been any conflict, he probably would have gone up to his room and written a poem, you know. So we just brought him to life in in a movie way, if you like, different to kind of who he was. But the core idea of a kid who seeks solace uh, in Springsteen's words was essentially Safraz. But then I kind of had that too, not to the same degree. You know, for me, I had always seen him as a friend who I could go and listen to and have a really great couple of hours really getting to grips with big questions about life and death and feeling trapped. And and the reason I got into him in the first place, and it was Born to Run and some of the early albums, the reason I got into him was because it was initially because the cover of his album, someone uh, at work, I used to work in Harrods mm -hmm. uh, at a rec in the record department, and, and I was really into Stax music, a lot of soul music. And this guy said, you should, you should, have you heard of Bruce Springsteen? And I said, yes, but I'm not a rocker because I had him down as a kind of heavy metal kind of guy. And then he said, no, no, he's not that. And he's the one who opened this album out, English chap, opened this album. And I saw a white dude and a black dude being very pally with each other, very smiley, very happy. And that was a very unusual image to see black and white together in that way. The only other time I'd seen that was Casey and the Sunshine Band. You know, so for me, it was that image, that image of togetherness at a time in Britain when we had had sort of riots, disturbances, where young black kids were getting uh, treated very badly by the police, you know, um, and there was this whole discussion about what are we? You know, our parents are from back home, but we're born and raised in Britain. So we're British, right? So it was that whole discussion about being British, Asian, British, black, British, whatever, you know, we were, we were going through those debates at that time. So that's why that image struck me. And then the words of Bruce struck me because he was talking about Ordinary people trying to make a better life for themselves, trying to get out of feeling trapped, trying to put food on the table, like in the river, you know, trying to kind of live, make the best of a hard life of struggle. And I was like, well, he's writing about my parents. He's writing about immigrants, you know, and that was the big connection. And I think that's when I explain that, people go, oh, oh, I get why you like Springsteen. But it's a funny thing. People don't realize that. But he does write for the underdog. You know, that's what he does. And that's how we, I see myself. Yeah, I mean, the film does an amazing job, I think, of drawing those connections in a way. I was just explaining to my producer before that you hear a song like Dancing in the Dark now, and it's wallpaper in some ways. We, yeah. We're so used to that sound, that sonic expansion, mm. that we don't hear the words as much. And in your movie... You literally show us the words, which mm. I think is enormously impactful to making us understand mm -hmm. how pained and how intense and how personal and yet accessible a lot of what he's doing is. 
Was that always part of the plan to sort of underline specifically the text of what Bruce was doing to make us understand how the characters are feeling? Oh, absolutely. I mean, part of my job as the director, you know, of the movie was uh, I, I approached it very forensically. I sat down with all the lyrics and uh, on the script and I absolutely plotted and planned them to the minutest of details to, for example, in Dancing in the Dark, you know, there were certain words that were very relevant to Javid at that time uh, in, the, in the movie, you know, when he first hears him. And, and that song, everyone thinks it's a dance song, but it's actually about deep alienation and feeling very trapped as a young person. And so I, I, I had to make a, a film about a kid whose dream is to be a writer and a film about words, cinematic. And so I had to find a way of making words emotional and putting words on screen so they were characters. And that's what I started doing, you know, playing with in that, in that sequence. And I choreographed the music. It's a funny thing to say, but it's all choreographed and it's all planned. So when there's a, a few lines in Dancing in the Dark that aren't relevant to Javid at that particular point. I can't really cut them because it's Bruce. So I'm going to cut Dancing in the Dark. And everyone's going, oh, that's a, that's a weird edit. What I do instead is I got, I did lots of big close-ups of Javid pressing forward. And so we just forward to the next line that's relevant. You know, messages keep getting stronger. That's the, because it goes into, that's why I'm just dancing in the dark. So I thought, I don't need that happy chorus right now. I need to get to the meat. So when that first chorus comes up, he presses forward and we go straight to messages keep getting stronger, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I did that with all the songs, really. I just needed to pick out what was relevant to the script, to the narrative journey of Javid. And so I could have used any Bruce song, but I just used the songs that worked for him. I have to assume that getting Bruce to agree to the making of this film was complicated. I understand he's he's a he's a very thoughtful guy and his music has been used in films over the years, but to have something like this that is so clinically oriented around his work, how do you get him to agree to do it? Well, Bruce uh, is, as you say, notoriously difficult to, you know, clear for movies. Um, and I just, I think it was um, a combination of seize the day and and just Bruce Barrett being where he was at in his life. Um, we were on, he was coming to London in 2010. I had said to Safraz, we have no movie of your book without, Springsteen's Blessing. Um, so in 2010, The Promise was premiering and I got invited so, and Bruce was coming. So I took Safraz as my plus one, ditched my husband. Uh, <laughs> Safraz says very wisely for that night. Um, and as we were both on the red carpet as fans and we both had our flip cameras on. And the idea was that as Bruce walked past us, we both would smile and be in the same frame as Bruce. <laughs> that was our plan for okay. the night at that point. And then we figured at some point we might be able to get to talk to him. But what actually ended up happening was in on the red carpet as he was walking, he kind of bananaed over to Safraz, who he had recognized from uh, being in the front of so many concerts and also hanging around hotels and outside cars, you know, to get autographs. He's one of those kind of geeky fans. Um, 
and he and he's Pakistani with an afro, so he looks very different uh, to his other fans. Recognizable, very yeah. recognizable. So Bruce walked over and went, "Hey, man, I read your book. It's really beautiful." And Safraz proceeded to have a meltdown. <laughs> oh my god, you took the time to read it. Oh my god, all this. And I was watching this exchange, and in my head, I was going. This is it. I've got three seconds to a movie deal with Bruce Springsteen right now on the carpet. And his people, you know, John Lando was behind him and his other managers, and they were trying to move him along. And Safras was having this meltdown, and Bruce was sort of smiling. And then I just went, Bruce, I'm going to chatter. I'm in bed like Beckham. He said, I heard about that movie. Um, we want to make a film of the book. Please, will you support us? We can't do it without you. And it was very, like, High pitch. I sound normal there. I wasn't. I was like, Bruce, it was kind of more like that because, you know, he was standing right there in front of us. Anyway, I did this sort of hyperventilating appeal to him and he looked at me and he looked at Safraz and he said, sounds good. Talk to John. And that's literally how the movie started. We spoke to John Lando, spoke to the other managers. I exchanged contact with Tracy Nurse, who'd worked with him for 35 years. And she became my contact person as part of his team. And every step of the way, I said, well, what does this mean? And she said, he likes the idea. You should write the script. So I was like, oh, my God. So I raised finance, worked on the script, finally got it to um, you know, a good place. And then I went off to make uh, Viceroy's House. Uh, and also I did the, I directed the musical, West End musical of Bend It Like Beckham. So I was kind of busy doing that. And then I came back to thinking, okay, what am I going to do next? What movie am I going to do next after Viceroy's House? It was uh, a couple of years ago. And, and then Brexit happened in England. And it was a very sad time for me because suddenly all this xenophobia erupted. And people felt that it was okay uh, to abuse elderly black women on buses who'd worked in our hospitals their whole life. And it really was a very daunting period. And, and I always remember my dad, you know, say my dad died in 1999 from, uh, from an accident. But before he died, you know, the one thing that really shook him was uh, when the former Yugoslavia kind of uh, broke apart. And there was ethnic cleansing on a massive scale. And he said, this is happening on our doorstep. You know, you can never be careful. And he said, whatever you do, open a bank account in India. You must do that, you know. And it was very chilling words for me that because I was raised in England and I consider myself a Londoner, you know, and a British Asian director. But, so uh, help me understand why he wanted you to do that. So you could return to India? In case anything in like that happened. Ha- okay. Yeah, yeah. In case there were any problems anywhere, at least you always, you know, had that. That is a daunting request. Very daunting. And the thing was, was that I wasn't even, we went, uh, my dad was born in Kenya. So my family were East African, you know, so India, I had a sort of disconnect with, because as I showed in Viceroy's house, my movie, it was about the partition of India. And my ancestors were from what is now Pakistan. So I didn't even have a home in India. So when my dad said that, it was very chilling. Um, But we got through it, we carried on. But then when this Brexit thing happened, those words came back to me. And I thought, wow, this is terrible. The fabric of society around me is starting to crumble. 
And obviously you've had similar things here in the US. We certainly have. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, I need to do something about this. What can I do to show that there is another way, there's a better way, and there is the mainstream way, the way that most people want to be together and live together. You know, and you you have to be careful because when you start saying things like that, it sounds really hokey, you know, which is why politicians don't say that stuff, which is why people on the other side get to be really um, xenophobic and racist because it's like they just get a lot more attention because to say the other side doesn't feel uh, political, if you like, mm -hmm. in the same way. Um, so I said, so I've got to use my voice, my skills to counteract this and find an antidote. And that's when I picked up the script of uh, Blinded by the Light again and I went through it and did my, what I call my Brexit pass. Um, and just wanted to make the scenes of struggle, of racism that Jarvid experiences really visceral and make the movie very emotionally impactful in terms of how you come through that, you know, how racism affects us, how you come through that, how Bruce helps him through that, you know, to come out the other side as a family, as a unit going forward, you know. And I think, you know, timing is everything, you know. I, I could not have predicted what would be going on here in America at this point, you know, when I met, when I made the movie. I could not have predicted what's going on in other parts of the world, even Britain, you know. So I just think that the timing of the film is what is making people feel uh, emotional, I think, when they come out of the cinema. Yeah, you draw a very clear one-to-one -one between what's happening in Luton at this time, yeah. you know, in 1987, 1988. I'm curious for you personally, when you were having these emotional and intellectual responses to Bruce, were you also encountering things like you know, the NF and the the kind of violence that was happening that you show in the film? Did you also have oh, exposure yes. to that? Oh, my God, yes. I grew up in a shop. My mum and dad had like a mum and pop store, you know. We never knew who was going to come through the door at any time. I never knew, you know, if sitting in the shop someone was going to come in and start attacking us, you know, abusing us, or if they were going to be a nice customer, you know. Um, there were times when my mum was in the store and guys would come in and just steal steal stuff. And then when she said something, they'd turn around and moon her. <laughs> that was quite funny. <laughs> my dad thought that was very More funny. emotionally violent than anything else <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> but I put that scene, I put that in Bodgy on the Beach, my very first film. I put those kind of movements, you know. And there's a line that the when these guys uh, abuse... Uh, the women uh, in that film, there's a line where one of the actors uh, who plays a shopkeeper says, the cream of British youth, we serve them in our shops every day. <laughs> and that's what my dad used to say, the cream of British youth. So like, yeah, I put a lot of those experiences into early films too. But I've always shied away from being very stark about racism. And that's because when you come from the environment that I do, you know, you the media, the media, you know, people see us in terms of race and a problem. So stories about us are generally seen as in the problematic, you know, that we're struggling and, and we're all, you know, and we do, but we're not totally defined by that. Uh, but other people who are monolingual, monocultural see 
see that as our as the as as our entire existence. Whereas if you're like me, part of a diaspora, multilingual, multicultural, just by who I am and how I see the world, it's much easier for people like us to to just move from one identity to another, from one experience to another. I mean, someone could abuse me racially in the morning and by lunchtime I'll be sitting with a whole bunch of friends going, what a jerk, and laughing about it and getting over it. And then by the evening be at home with family and, you know, having a lovely joyful time, you know. So that's why in my films, you know, I go from pain and struggle to humour to to uh, joy effortlessly because that is the nature of my life. That was what I was going to ask you about is you're kind of cascading along tonalities throughout the movie, you know, that yeah. at sometimes it's a coming of age drama. At sometimes it's a more serious issues oriented drama. At sometimes it's a romance. At sometimes it's a comedy, a musical. Yeah. What's it like? I mean, you've done this in other films, but that feels really difficult to do, to, to mix tone that way in genre. Yeah. You know, how do you do that? Are you doing that on the page to start? It's a combination. It's kind of in my head. You know, I think as a director, what you actually, you know, most films by directors, unless you're like a jobbing director, you know, when you're more of an auteur director, I think you your personalities really come out in your work. You know, you can tell a film and who the director is because of the way, you know, they shoot the movie and, and what they're concerned with. Scorsese is a great example. Spielberg's a great example, you know. Here uh, at work, we say, if you cover the person's byline and you read the piece, can you tell that they wrote it? Exactly. It's a very similar thing. Exactly. Um, and I think that that for me, that's my byline. You know, I think uh, I go from here to here. And that's because I'm a director that carries carries the burden of representation, as we say, you know. Like, I have to make sure that I represent myself and my community right. But at the same time, I don't want to make a film just for them. I need to make a film for the world, you know. I'm going to make it for everybody. I have an audience all over the world. And so I also have to do that and sort of think universally. And then I also, as a filmmaker, just want to make a good film that isn't about representation. It's just a good storytelling, uh, you know, well-crafted film. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I do think films do have an impact on society. And I know this from Bend It Like Beckham because timing-wise, again, Bend It Like Beckham came out straight after 9-11. And this was a film that was sort of just welcomed into the arms of all kinds of people all over the world and made an extraordinary hit all over the world because people just needed to hold on to something positive and cultural that they related to and felt warm towards. That's what I think. I mean, you know, that film has one record that no other film has. What is it? It's the only film that's ever been distributed in every single country in the world, including North Korea. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, to it's totally in the cultural lexicon, right? We know yeah. that phrase forever because of the film, yeah. even setting aside the soccer player. But yeah. what is it like for someone like you who has made a film that has, so many people have seen, has impacted so many people, but then you obviously have an entire career in front of you after you've done something like that? Yeah, that's tricky because, what you know, it's been tough, actually, because people want me to make Bender Like Beckham over and over and over again. And whatever I do, it's like, yeah, it's great, but it's not Bender Like Beckham, right. you know. Although there is a tussle between Bride and Prejudice fans over who likes which one better. Um, but I think, 
I think a lot of that comes from the Asian community because they they and 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 women because uh, they so rarely see themselves represented in a sort of such an empowering way that you know they just want more they want more and so if I if I move away from that formula you know I'm doing them a disservice because right. they just want more so that's how I see it really but I mean it was important to me to do things differently I mean after Beckham I did make a musical you know I wanted to do that then I made um a film for Paramount um although it was set in England Angus Thongs and Perfect Snogging which is a uh, which launched uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson uh, but what what's great about that film is that a lot of people who I meet now grew up with that film and they're like oh my god I, I saw that film on a loop now I'm watching it with my kids actually they say the same about Bend It Like Beckham as well um, and then I wanted to do this big political um, period drama Viceroy's House so I do as a director try and vary things but you are you do get saddled with what people love you for and they do want you to do that film over and over again so, which is why I think Blinded by the Light, even though I was concerned about similarities with Bender Light Beckham, I did um, ultimately feel that that was 17 years ago now and that I could go back and make a film in, in that genre. Yeah, I think for obvious reasons, it's going to be accessible to a lot of different kinds of people too. And, and honestly, in America, it's just an easier sell. It's a, this is a film about how Springsteen changed my life, which is something that, I mean, yeah. how many Americans can say the same thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I think people are surprised when they go and see the film. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's what I'm getting uh, in previews and people writing, especially the spring nuts, you know. <laughs> Is that what they're called? The yeah, they're called nuts? the spring nuts. Okay, yeah. that's good to know. They're a wonderful group of people who are very active on social media. <laughs> um, and they're like diehard Springsteen fans around the world. And they're called Spring Nuts. Okay. And we, we had a hundred of them at the premiere in New Jersey, which was wonderful. Um so they, they're going in thinking what you just said, Springs the House, Springs in Change My Life. What they're not expecting is the journey of being a 16-year-old Pakistani kid during Thatcher's time, mm -hmm. getting sort of spat at and getting abused and, and then trying to work things out with his family in this sort of specifically cultural way. And of course, Bruce is an integral part of that, but I, somehow they, I don't think they were expecting the cultural journey. And then, and then also for it to be so moving, the cultural journey to be so moving. And I think that's, that's fantastic because they're coming out going, Oh my God, this is more than uh, what we thought it was going to be. It, it's different. And that's great because that's the whole reason I became a film director. My whole reason to become a film director was to put people that look like me and my cousins and my family in the center of the cinema frame, not on the edges, not on the margins, and even absent from the frame. Because before I started making films, there were no films really about people like me in Britain. And so there was one, actually, it was My Beautiful Laudrette, but that was different, and East is East actually too. But they were made by mixed-race Asians. So they were half English, half Pakistani in both cases, Hanif and Ayub. So their experience of their culture was very different to mine. My films are more warmer and affectionate about their Asianness. Their films were not. And so for me, that was the, the important thing was to celebrate who I am and, and also tell our stories from our perspective. 
that's the whole reason I, I became a director. Speaking of the center of the frame, is it Vivek Kalra? Yes. Where did he come from? So he was still at school, school, drama school. He had been in a uh, drama, an ITV drama, TV. Um, and I'd seen him in that. And um, and I, I liked his look, but I couldn't really tell from the TV show. And he came in and auditioned along with a, a bunch of other guys. And he was terrific. He had great instincts. He's very inward very private you know so he I felt he could play the tortured poet you know the other guy who was also very good uh was the guy I then cast Aaron Figura as Roops yes his best friend his best friend uh, but Aaron was a much much more of an extrovert you know and suited that part you can see that in the film yeah but you know I think with Vivek you know he and Aaron but more with Vivek we really crafted that performance. You know, he was new. He had great instincts. But I had to pull out of him a performance that would carry the movie and be a movie for the cinema, you know. And I, I enjoy working with new talent in that respect. And what was great was he trusted me and we, I was able to really take him through uh, his paces. And there were times when, you know, we had some quite s- sticky situations where I wasn't buying it and he couldn't understand why I wasn't buying it. And I was trying to explain to him. And then finally he understood. And there were other times when I said, you've checked out, this isn't working. And he goes, I haven't checked out. I said, you're thinking about lunch. And he goes, no, I'm not. And I said, you are, I can see it. And and then he'd go, no, I'm not. Because obviously he'd be a bit of a belligerent teenager as well. And then we, I said, well, let's do it again. And then we'd do it. And then he'd go into the camera and go, you're right. I was thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he's really quite remarkable. I I, yeah. I had never seen him before. He really, I mean, he's in 90% of the shots in the film. Absolutely. He really can carry it. And, and, and like I said, you're shifting tonality. So he's got to play sweet yes. one moment. He's got to play tortured. He's got to yes. sing. He's got to yes. do all of these incredible things. So, you know, kudos to both of you guys. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned um, that there is a kind of, a warmth towards your identity in your films. And there's also just kind of a warmth in your movies. There's a optimism, I would say. And I'm curious if that is a very purposeful choice that you put in your films. And especially in this one, which I think people will walk out and feeling good in in a specific way. Well, I'm a director, but I'm also a mother, you know, and, you know, mothers, we're not necessarily nihilistic. You know, we're not going to say to our... I'm just kidding. Sorry? (laughs) Did you say like your mom? Yeah, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not going to say to my kids, you know, you know what? The world's a horrible, shitty, racist, xenophobic place. It's better you don't ever leave the house and don't try and do anything except stay cocooned. Obviously, I'm not going to say that, you know. Um, I do believe that there's a lot of great things around us. I do believe that people genuinely in their core are good you know, I do believe that what makes us human is the fact that we can empathize and we have empathy. And I think a lot of humans do empathize. And that's a fantastic quality. And that's what Bruce, that's also Bruce's hope is that is that he empathizes with people and asks you to empathize with the people who are struggling. And I think in a way I kind of do the same thing. Um 
and I and I and I enjoy making films that are very emotionally resonant because I just keep trying to counteract. You know, I refuse to let the racists win. That's my thing. I refuse. Not going to let it. Not going to let them touch me. I'm not going to let them touch my kids. I'm not going to let them touch people that I care about. And and I got to say that. I got to stand up for that. And that's what I feel I do with my films. A couple more for you. What's the one Bruce song that is not in this film that you love, that you wanted to put in or that you just couldn't find a place for, but that you are very attached to? Sherry Darling, hands down. Why? Sherry Darling. Sherry Darling was one of the first songs that I heard of Bruce's on the on the River album that is so joyful and just not about anything miserable or melancholy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so happy and just lovely and... And he does it different ways at different times. He's got slower versions. He's got faster versions. He's got live versions. And I just, I love that song because I just feel that whenever I've seen Bruce sing it, that he's really happy. You know, I love that. He just is so, you know, it's just a happy song. And I like seeing Bruce happy and it just is it stuck out for me as, oh my God, he's done a happy song. Um, so that was the one song I was trying to get in the movie. I couldn't get it in anywhere. But in New Jersey, in Asbury Park, at our premiere, an amazing moment where Bruce turned up on the red carpet, gave me a big hug. <gasps> uh, and we were walking down the red carpet and he took my hand. I was holding hands with Bruce as we walked down the carpet. and. My kids are there. My kids give him a hug like he's some kind of uncle of theirs or something because um, they'd live with him for like, you know, a year now. They were like, oh, it's Uncle Bruce. So they like never met him before, but they were all like hugging him. Um, and then and then we went, he stayed in, watched the movie, had a great time, throwing his popcorn in the air. And then we went to the after party and then he got up on stage. And he did a set and he played Sherry Darling. Amazing. And I was like, yes, it's complete. My journey is complete. That is so perfect. I end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers, what's the last great thing that they've seen? Grinder, what's the last great thing you've seen? Wow. Do you know what? It has, if I'm really honest, should I tell you what I just saw on the plane that sure. I've never seen? Forrest Gump. No kidding. I never saw Forrest Gump. Did it hold up for you? Did it live yeah. up to your expectations? Yeah, I loved it, you know, because I just, here was a guy with special needs in the center of the frame. And I I didn't want to see it at the time because there was so much hype and I was, and there was that ad, you know, life's a box of chocolates. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, this, is, um, this isn't going to do it for me, you know. But then I watched it on the plane and I was in tears at the end. And I was like, why did she have to die? You know, yeah. I was like, oh, my God. But that, that was the little period. little forest, yeah, yeah. Yeah, up school. A little yeah. forest. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I was really emotional, but that really held up for me. The film that I really want to see is Echo in the Canyon. Yes, we were just talking about that before you came in. That's the film I've got literally... You know, if I got time today, I'm going to go and see. It's only on in one theater. <laughs> is there is that a period of music that you love? Yes, yes, yes. it's very good. It's, uh, if if you love that sound, you'll love the movie. Well, I love all films about music. I mean, another the, the film I think is great is Hurricane. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. I lo- anything to do with music, using music in a powerful way to, to you know, create your messages uh, it, for me is hands down my favorite kind of movies. Um, the Hurricane and Blinded by the Light would be a nice double feature. Yes, yeah. it would be actually. Yes, very timely. Um, one thing though, I must tell you though, because you have uh, cineasts listening, sure. a lot of directors. So I'm sitting at the London premiere of Blinded by the Light with Barbara Carr, one of Bruce's uh, managers, longtime manager. And she says to me, uh, I'm going to tell you something, Grinda. You know, your film really inspired Bruce. I went, what? No kidding. She said, yeah, it inspired him so much that he's directed his own movie. <laughs> I'm like, What? And so his new movie, which is based on his new album, Western Stars, which is going to play at Toronto, he's directed it. And it's directed by Bruce Springsteen and Tom Zimmy, who does his other stuff. But Bruce wanted to direct it because he just was so happy, I guess, with the way that I'd used his songs and and um, made them mean you know, a lot more, I guess, than than he was thinking when he was writing them. He's given you so much, it's about time you gave something to him. Exactly, exactly. Grinder, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you again to Grinder Chata for the chat and to my pal Chris Ryan. Amanda will be back next week, so please stay tuned. We're probably going to be talking about Where'd You Go, Bernadette? the new Richard Linklater film that is coming out quite soon and none of us have seen it. And so we're (laughs) looking forward to any new Richard Linklater movie and especially one from the Maria Semple novel that this is based on. So if you're looking forward to that one as well, come back next week.